blessed to have this opportunity. I'd like to welcome you all to this special Sunday that we've set aside to recognize our seniors, the graduating class of 2017. This year we have uh, three graduating seniors that we'll be recognizing. Those seniors are Daniel Brockington, uh, Nahum Garcia, and Sarah Dooley. Um, As a side note, I kind of like that all three of them had good, strong Bible names, as someone who can appreciate that. As Walter mentioned, my name is Chase. I'm one of the members here at Netherwood. I'm not the typical preaching minister. Usually on our graduation Sundays, like today, we have our youth minister deliver the sermon. But right now we happen to be in the process of seeking out a new person to fill that position for us. And so I'd like to give a brief update on how that process is going. We started our search in November of 2016, and we've been working steadily since that time. We put together a search committee of people to help go through that process. At this point, we've had um, 50 people who have shown interest in the position, give or take. And we've evaluated each one of them. We've reviewed resumes. We've conducted interviews. We've prayed a lot. And we continue to work through that process. And we're confident that God is going to lead us to a really qualified and capable person. If you're interested in seeing the job description for that position, it's on Netherwood Park's website on the homepage there. So I'd ask that you keep praying for us, um, that God would grant us success and lead us to the person that he's chosen for that position. So as we get into our lesson here, let's start by praying. God, thank you again for this morning. Thank you for blessing us so richly here at this congregation. We do want to lift up our search process, and ask for your blessing on that, that you would lead us to the person that you've selected on our behalf. This morning, we thank you for our graduates, God, Daniel, Nahum, and Sarah. We thank you for their families and all the people around them who made this possible for them to be celebrating this milestone. And God, we just ask that you would bless them and all of us as we go on from here today. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, we're going to be talking about uh, opportunities. In fact, let's see if we got... I'm going to get started here. So there's a, an opportunity I'd like to share from the business world that comes to us by way of our friends at Kodak. Right? You remember these? So back in time, there was a point in time where Kodak uh, was dominant in their industry in film and camera sales. In fact, at one point, they had in excess of 80% market share in both of those things, film and camera sales. Huge company that dominated their industry. It seemed like they had everything going for them. And what's interesting is that despite the fact that they specialized in film, they were one of the first companies to develop and build a digital camera. So it appeared as though they had everything going the right way for them. Not only were they very established in their current market, but they were also on the cutting edge of new technology. So from the outside looking in, it would appear as though they were poised for very long-term success. And yet, that's not how things worked out for Kodak. The transition to digital photography and the advent of camera phones just devastated their business, and it started them on a downward trend that ultimately resulted in them filing bankruptcy in 2012. So we just see a huge um, opportunity that they had there that was somehow missed And it led to um, a lot of frustration and ultimately um, a company falling that had been great at one time. 
opportunities are really easy to identify after the fact. Whenever we've gone through the thing, we say that hindsight is 2020. The more challenging thing is identifying opportunities ahead of time and trying to take advantage of them. And so that's what our scripture deals with today. We see that an opportunity was presented and it came to both negative and positive results for different people. So Matthew 25 tells the parable of the bags of gold. Some translations, like the one we read, will call it the parable of the talents. And so I'd like to just make sure that we all kind of understand um, what's going on here in this parable before we really dive in. Looks like we're... Rick, can I turn it over to you? I'm going to have you do that. We're back at the previous slide, if you will. So when we look at what a talent is... Um, I did some math. I thought, okay, what is that? Because when we talk about a talent, it's referring to currency, some amount of money. And so the Greek word that's translated talent, my Bible tells me that a talent was 20 years of a day laborer's wage. So just off the top of my head, I know that's a fair amount of money, but I did some math to figure that out. So if we assume that a modern-day equivalent of a day laborer's wage is $10 an hour, and that that person's going to work eight hours a day, for 40 hours a week, and let's say 50 weeks a year, when you do that math and multiply that by 20 years, that comes out to $400,000. And so if we have eight talents the master gave away, five to one, two to another, and one to the last guy, that works out to $3.2 million that the master has distributed, that he has asked these servants to take care of. And so we know that, by definition, when a parable is told by Jesus, it has a deeper meaning, and we need to understand the application of that. So when we look at that, we see that there's multiple characters in this story. There's a master, and there's servants. So who does the master represent? Well, that would be God in this case. And the servants, they represent us, you and me. They're people that God has entrusted with things. So what are we to learn from this? Well, the first principle that I want to point out is that we've all been given something. In this parable, there was no servant that received nothing. Everybody received at least something. And I would say he received more than just something. Keep in mind, the smallest amount given was $400,000, right? I don't know about you, but for me, that's a pretty significant sum of money. And so, as we apply it to ourselves, these talents, they may or may not represent actual money that God's given us. I think that could certainly be the case. Perhaps God has blessed us financially, but I think it could be a number of other things as well. Maybe God's blessed you with intellect or the opportunity to get an education, as we're celebrating today. Maybe God's given you a loving and respectful spouse. Maybe you have a solid family that raised you with your background. Perhaps you have a good job, or even just having your health is something that many of us take for granted, and yet it's a blessing from God. There's one bag of gold in particular that I want to spend some time on, and I think that we've all been given some measure of it. You can see over here to my left that we have some jars here, and these jars are filled with marbles. So we've got these jars, and this is a little exercise that Anthony set up before he left us. So each jar that we have represents one grade level that is currently in the youth group. And so it's filled with marbles. Each marble represents one week that that class in the youth group has remaining in the youth group. So I did some calculations here. 
And if we assume that our seniors will stay in the youth group through the end of the summer and we use UNM's start date, then that means from today, the seniors who are graduating have 15 weeks left in the youth group. So you can see that this jar on the end here representing the seniors has quite a few less marbles than the jar that I took from the other end. The jar here represents our sixth graders. And by those same calculations, uh, the sixth graders who started school, sixth grade in the fall of 2016, I believe they're the class of 2023, and they have 276 weeks remaining in the youth group. So Anthony set this up as a reminder, not only to the kids, but I believe to all of us, that we have been given some amount of time, perhaps different amounts of time, um, but time as well as energy. All of us have at least some of both of those to apply in service of our Lord. And I like this because it's a very tangible reminder of what that is. And each week in Bible class, the kids go in and they'll remove, a representative from each class will remove one marble to represent that time that's passing by. I'm going to put this back. It's important that we have a sense of urgency and seek to use our time wisely. We've only been given so much, but we have been given something. So when I refer to bags of gold or talents in relation to this parable, what I'm talking about is resources or opportunities that God has entrusted to each one of us to use on his behalf. So there's a spot on your note sheet there. I want you to take a second and just write something down. As you think about your own life, what's one example of a bag of gold that God has entrusted to you and said, do something with this? Write that down and meditate on it. The next thing I'll point out is that not all the servants were given the exact same thing by the master. And in the application, I believe that's true as well. We look around and we understand that all of our blessings are unique in both their kind as well as their quantity. And I think probably for many of us that can rub us the wrong way a little bit. Perhaps it seems a little bit unfair that God would entrust one person with so much and another person with so little in comparison. But we can also trust that God didn't make a mistake in that. I was talking with my wife Shayla about this and she really helped me understand how we get this all wrong. The reason I believe that we find this to be unfair is that we think the stuff we've been entrusted with is ours, that we somehow own it. And so it's not fair if you own more than I do in terms of what we've been given by God. But I don't think that's really the case. As we analyze this, we understand that the bags of gold that were given, they were not gifts in the traditional sense. The master was entrusting these items to them. It wasn't just a gift for them to do whatever they wanted with. They had a clear understanding, both the master and the servants, that the master would be later returning and he would expect to receive his gold back, that the people would have to give an account for what they did with his resources. Those things were just on loan from God. The word that we use in in the church is that the servants were being entrusted as stewards. And steward is basically a fancy word for saying, referring to somebody who is watching over an asset or a resource, taking care of it on behalf of someone else who actually owns the item. So I think that that helps us address the idea of unfairness. When we start to understand the stuff that's under our control right now, it's not really ours. In addition, uh, we find that in the kingdom of heaven, less is often more. 
Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Jesus said that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so if we really believe that, if that's actually true, and God's power is made perfect in weakness, then I think there's at least one sense in which someone who's been given fewer bags of gold has been given a head start over somebody who's been entrusted with much. If the idea is that we rely on God for everything, perhaps that comes easier to someone who has less. So if we've all been entrusted with something, I want to talk about how do we maximize our potential with that. I also want to talk about the things that hold us back. So let's talk about that first. Let's, let's talk about what causes us to want to hide our gold, like the guy who received just the one bag. Well, we can look right here in the scripture and say, how did that guy explain his own behavior? What did he tell the master? He says he was afraid. The master was a hard man and he was worried He had fear that he would lose the talent and fear of the consequences that would come from that. And so we want to dive into that a little bit. Fear can take many different forms. One of the interesting forms, I believe, is procrastination. So all the procrastinators in the room, listen up, because I'm talking to you and to myself, okay? I'm sure we've got a good showing this morning. Procrastination, I think, can often be motivated by fear. But when we talk about it, I think we often talk about the motivation being laziness. People see someone procrastinating and think they're lazy, they just don't want to work. But in truth, in my experience, a lot of my procrastination comes from fear. We just don't want to deal with the thing that's ahead of us, and so we delay and we delay and we try to find other things to fill our time. So I think that understanding that sometimes our procrastination is motivated by fear rather than laziness, it helps us deal with that better. It helps us understand why we're doing what we're doing, and it pushes us um, to be able to, to deal with that better and move past those obstacles. The bad thing about fear also is that it makes us act illogically. So the guy who was given one bag, he was afraid, and so he hid the gold. But what's funny is it was the act of hiding the gold that got him in trouble. And so it became this weird self-fulfilling prophecy And I think that's true in many of our lives. The things that we fear most, whenever we succumb to that fear, we often end up creating this self-fulfilling prophecy where we realize that end result that we hoped to avoid. And had we dealt with our fear more effectively, perhaps we could have avoided that negative consequence. Teddy Roosevelt said this, In any moment of decision, the best thing you can do is the right thing, the next best thing is the wrong thing, and the worst thing you can do is nothing. That's a quote that really speaks to me. In fact, I think when I look at this parable, I realize that for the guy who received the one bag of gold, I think the master would have preferred that he tried something. He took a shot, and even if he lost it, he would be more pleased with him than the fact that he just hid the talent in the ground. Part of the reason I believe that is that this master is rich, right? He's beyond wealthy. It's so funny to me. Look at this. He's handing out this money, right? And he tells the guy who gave him, he gave five talents, he tells him, you've been faithful with a few things. Well, five talents is $2 million. And the master is saying, that's, well, that's just a few things. I'll put you, I'll entrust you with more. So this guy is rich. And that's true of our master as well. So the fact is that he gave this money to the servants for their sake, 
not his own. He didn't need any help in accumulating more wealth. To get to his $3.2 million here shows he's plenty capable. He was entrusting the wealth for the sake of the servants so that they could stretch themselves and grow and learn. I think sometimes we become afraid that if we try something and screw up that we somehow diminish the glory of God or that we have a bad showing on behalf of the Lord. We've got to understand God is rich. God is wealthy. And there's nothing that we can do that will take away from that. And so that should give us boldness to try something And even if we fail, God is capable of dealing with those failures. So I would encourage our graduates today that as you look ahead to what's possible in your life, don't let that fear seize you. Don't let it hold you back. Even if you fall, it will be better than just sitting back and doing nothing. So if fear is something that holds us back, how do we deal with that? I'll call our attention to 1 John 4, verse 18. It says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. That's an exciting thing. Fear is something that we all face, and we're in the midst of that. We need to remember this scripture and understand that love can drive out that fear. Fear starts to melt away as love comes in. And so when we fear that judgment, when we fear that punishment from the Lord, that's the time that we have to draw near to him, and the love will help us deal with that. So the servant described his motivation as fear. The master said something different. What did the master say? He calls the servant wicked and lazy. He says that wickedness and laziness was the motivation behind the servant's behavior. And I wonder, don't you think that's maybe a little bit harsh? Like this guy was just maybe doing the best he can. He was a little bit worried. He didn't want to lose the money, and so he hides it away. But the master really calls him out for that. In fact, he goes so far as to throw him out where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Like, whoa, master. That's kind of intense. But I think the master had an idea like this in mind when he says that. James 4, 17 is a message to us, and it says this. If anyone, then, knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. That's a pretty high standard that makes me a little bit uncomfortable. I wonder in the room, whenever the master's throwing out this servant, maybe there was someone else in that room, and they say, Whoa, 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 master, take it easy. Like, this guy didn't even do anything. I think the master would have turned to that person and said, you know what, you're exactly right, and that's the problem. He didn't do anything. Do we ever find ourselves in those kinds of scenarios? See, I think we talk a lot about sinning versus not sinning. That's the way that we frame things for ourselves. It's good versus evil, and we're trying as best we can to choose the side of good. But I think that in God's world, that's pretty limited thinking, I think that God wants to hold us to a more noble standard than that. So rather than just thinking about good versus evil, God wishes that we would think about good versus better and better versus best, and that we would leave those kind of elementary things behind to say, I don't even have time for sinning. I'm trying to apply myself in the best possible way, and evil is just an afterthought at that point. We always kind of talk like, well, as long as I'm not sinning, then I'm just achieving that all God wants for me. And I would just ask, doesn't God deserve more than that? 
a life that's simply free of sin, I think, still falls short of what the Holy Spirit is capable of in each one of us. It leads me to this idea that I think God cares pretty deeply about our performance. It certainly doesn't change how much he loves us, okay? Make sure you hear me correctly here. Our performance, whether it's good or bad, does not change how much God loves us, but I think our performance and our behavior, it does have an ability to either be pleasing or displeasing to the Lord. We don't have time for it today, but write this down. I would encourage you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and read verses 10 through 15. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, and it talks in there about builders on building on a foundation. And for the people who build well, there will be a reward. And for the people who do poor quality work, they will be saved, and yet they will suffer loss, it says. Read that and see what you think about that. It says that the the quality work will be rewarded. And to be honest with you, I don't have a full understanding of what that reward is going to be, but I do want it. I know that whatever it is that God has in store for the person who does quality work, that's something that I want to be receiving, and we should be working towards that. I would compare it to earthly relationships. We have examples of obedient children and disobedient children, right? And in fact, one child alone can fall into a wide range of points on that spectrum, right? Even just a few minutes. But like our earthly parental relationships, obedience is rewarded and disobedience is not rewarded. In fact, disobedience is often punished. And I believe that that's true with God as our Father as well. That we can be obedient to him and put ourselves in a position to receive reward and blessing. And disobedience does not put us in that same position. So we can talk as if there's no distinction between good performance and bad performance because grace will just cover it all. But I think that that's leaving out really important sections of scripture like that one in Corinthians I just mentioned. So I certainly don't intend to minimize grace or suggest that we can earn our salvation. Don't hear me incorrectly. But I do want to motivate us to say, are we all living the best lives that we can to please our Father? We've talked about the things that can hold us back from making the most of the bags of gold that we've been given. Let's talk now about some of the things that can help us be successful in utilizing these bags of gold. So it's along the lines of what we've been speaking about, but the first principle here is to do something rather than nothing. It's simple, but it's powerful. The master told the guy who received the one bag, he said, couldn't you have at least put the money on deposit with the bankers? so that I could collect interest. There's a very uh, low-risk, low-effort even, way to do something rather than nothing, and yet that's not what the one servant did. I wonder if maybe the guy who received one bag, he had this grand master plan about everything he was going to do, and he built this plan up in his mind so big that when it came time to finally execute, it felt just too hard, and it was easier just to do nothing. I think that happens with us, too. We have this notion of go big or go home. And I think that doesn't always serve us very well when we understand the idea that doing something is better than nothing. Going partway is better than doing nothing. Oftentimes. In fact, I, I heard about a book that a guy wrote, and the idea was that we should be starting ridiculously small habits that will serve us well. So one of the author's commitments 
uh, in terms of fitness, was to do, commit to do one push-up every day. And he claimed that that idea of doing at least one every day got him in the best shape of his life. You know, so you think about that, like, really? Is this guy for real? His workout regimen is one push-up a day? Can you imagine, you know, it's like, okay, a little bit of warm-up, you know, I'm ready. Okay, working out. Oh. Oh. Feel the burn, right? Hey. Well, no, right? I mean, we can understand if this guy's getting in good shape, probably he was doing more than that. But he was tapping into something very powerful about habits. He understood that often starting the process is the hardest part. And so he knew, if I can just do one, if I can just bring myself to get started, I will always have the energy to do more. And he did. So he didn't commit to do 100. He committed to do one. And that's what got his momentum started. He established that habit, and it served him well for years to come. So we need to latch on to that notion that doing something is better than nothing. One push-up, it may not be much, but it's better than zero push-ups, right? It gets us started down a path. And that's often the hardest part. It really hit me as I read through this that consistency is so important and habits are very, very powerful. In fact, this, one of the biggest little pieces of wisdom that came to me in studying for this lesson is that consistency is oftentimes more powerful than intensity. I would write that down if I were you. Consistency is more powerful than intensity. And let me tell you what I mean. See, in nearly every case, a short burst of really extreme effort will not overcome small efforts that have been applied consistently over time. And yet there's a temptation to think the opposite, right? That we can cram for a test or that we can just take a big family vacation and it will make up for a lot of the things that we were missing out on before. But that's not true. Consistency is more powerful than intensity. The other thing that I want to point out that should be encouraging to us as we use our bags of gold is that God has given us so much freedom. There's such a wide range of things that we can do to please him. It doesn't tell us what the five-talent guy and the two-talent guy did to earn a return on their investments. And I think part of the reason for that is that there's any number of things that could have been done, and it was all pleasing to God. So we talk a lot about the restrictions that God places on us to say, well, God's telling me I can't do this and I can't do this. But if we really analyze it, I believe that the prohibitions required by God are small in comparison to the freedoms that he gives us. We have to reframe this issue and stop focusing on the limitations and start embracing the freedom. God gives us wide latitude to pursue our interests and do things that please him. So rather than stressing too much about finding the exact right thing to do, as I think the one bag of gold guy did, we just should focus on doing something rather than nothing. The next thing that I pull out of this in terms of what we can do to make the most of our gold is to just take responsibility for ourselves. When you read this, you can see that the guy who has one bag, he's deflecting some of the blame, isn't he? He kind of brings the master into it. He says, well, I was afraid because you're a hard man. I was afraid of you. You know, he didn't say, well, uh, the reason I was wicked and lazy, and so therefore I buried your gold. No. He's not looking in the mirror that way. He's wanting to kind of cast the blame on someone else. There's a psychologist named Julian Rotter who did uh, work in the 1950s, and he developed this idea 
called locus of control. So the term is locus, not locust. You can see it up here on the screen. Locusts are what John the Baptist eat. Locus means location in Latin. And so this idea that he developed it is this continuum between external and internal locus of control. So someone who has an internal locus of control, they believe that they can affect change, that they have uh, influence, that they have an ability to affect outcomes. Someone who has an external locus of control believes that that power doesn't lie with them, but instead it lies with outside forces, things they don't have control over. So an internal locus of control person attributes their future success or failure to themselves, whereas someone with an internal locus, uh, I'm sorry, an external locus, attributes that to outside forces. You know, you can understand the external locus of control people, they're victims. You know, things just happen to them and it's never their fault. Whereas an internal locus of control person takes responsibility for themselves. And so I want to ask this question to us this morning, who has control over your outcomes, over your life. I want to ask, don't get too self-righteous on me. I understand we're here in a church and ultimately, yeah, God has control over our lives. But let's also not ignore the fact that God has given us a lot of free will and he has given us the ability to direct our own steps. And I believe that when we bring ourselves to a point of bringing that locus of control more internal, we're in a position to do more with the bags of gold that God has entrusted us. So evaluate these statements, for example. I was late to work because traffic was bad versus I was late to work because I didn't take time to account for the traffic. Or what about this one? We lost the game because the umpire made stupid calls versus we lost the game because we didn't play well enough. Or maybe, well, I got bad grades because the teacher didn't like me. Or instead, I got bad grades because I didn't study enough. It's easy to see a pattern develop in the ways that someone with an internal locus of control talk versus somebody with an external locus of control. So a major strategy that we should employ in taking responsibility for ourselves is working to internalize our locus of control, that location from which we feel like we can influence outcomes. So here again, I've given you a spot on your note sheet. Write down one area on your note sheet where you feel like you've developed an unhealthy external locus of control an area of your life where you victimized yourself to say, this, this bad situation is just happening to me and I can't do a thing to change it. Write that down and then later today or this week, meditate on that and see if God doesn't give you a way to take more control in that situation, to stop being a victim and be more accountable for the results of that. The cool thing is that when we start to take responsibility, our little victories can build on one another So the the guy who received five bags and the guy who received two bags, they were faithful with little. And the master says, you're going to be entrusted with more. Come and share in my happiness. And that's a true principle in the world for us as well. That little victories add up. Small things add up to become big things. So in closing, I just want to offer a challenge. A challenge to our graduates and really a challenge to all of us. For the graduates, you guys are starting this new chapter of your life. And I think it's good to take time to reflect on the past, on the people and the circumstances that brought you to where you are today. And you should also be looking ahead with anticipation to the things that God has in store for you. But for all of us, in the midst of doing that, let's not forget to live in the present. All of us have been given a bag of gold. For the graduates, 
you've got a big old bag sitting right in front of you right now, and that's awesome. It's a huge opportunity that God is entrusting you with, and he wants you to do something with it. So my hope is that we would be people who put our bags of gold to work, that we get a return on that, and that at the end of it all, we can hear the sweet words of our Lord when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share in your master's happiness. Let's pray. God, thank you for being so generous to us. Thank you for giving us more than we could ever ask for. You have given us all at least something, God. We all have bags of gold that you've entrusted to us, and we want to do well with those things. We want to multiply those gifts. Would you please help us do that, God? I pray especially for our graduates today that they would find new and creative ways to invest those resources that you've entrusted them and that all of us would hold one another accountable as we seek to do that and to grow your kingdom. Thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.